Welcome to the latest episode of The Grower and The Economist. I'm Michelle Klieger, The Economist. And I'm Peter Kanjoyan, The Grower. Each week, we team up to tackle the biggest challenges facing small and medium-sized growers. We're one part grower and one part economist, just like your business. Welcome to this episode of The Grower and The Economist. I love when we are able to build off a guest and dive deeper and really bring value to our listeners. So today we are going to be talking about a propagation strategy for your greenhouse. This is something that Keith Bremer and Peter were discussing last time on The Gate. And while it's a standalone topic, so we decided that we would dive in a little deeper, explain it, and really show how you can get a lot of value out of your greenhouse. So take it away, Peter. All right, Michelle, thanks for that introduction. Yes, during the last episode, Keith and I got way down into the weeds when we were discussing tactics and tips for energy control and and, uh, trying to rein in fuel costs that are skyrocketing. So we spent most of the episode talking about that and only introduced the, the topic of a small greenhouse operator building or somehow adding propagating capability into his or her greenhouse. So I wanted to jump right in on that while the topic is fresh fresh in our minds and give you a few chances to make some economic comments as, as I go through some of the requirements that I'd like our uh, uh, listeners to consider. So let me set the stage a little more clearly Let's say that a farmer has one or more freestanding Quonset greenhouses or a bedding plant grower with the same small operation, freestanding greenhouses, one or more. And the farmer or bedding plant grower wants to uh, propagate some of his or her own seedlings or rooted cuttings. So that's the target. That's the group of growers that we're addressing today. And why do people want to propagate their own? That's a great question. And that's what pulls you right into the conversation. We, we might be able to justify doing more propagating on site today, given the last uh, three years of our conversation together, talking about supply chain disruptions. And we've also touched on how large growers have some leverage in certain of these um, uh, environments where small growers tend to have a little more difficulty. So this would be a grower who, just to get started, let's pull in the old, good old 80-20 rule, Michelle. And, And let's say that a small grower is growing a number of different cultivars of either tomato for the farm, the fields, or... Um, petunias for bedding plants. And a good place for this grower to start propagating on site would be to take that 20% of the cultivars that make up 80% of his or her crop volume, right? So so let's, let's pick that one cultivar that you grow the most of and choose that one 
to be your on-site propagation, and then get all of the uh, dribs and drabs, the, the other 80% of the cultivars that make up only a fraction of the production, and, and uh, keep buying, buying those in. So, so that's some of the justification. I think you, you might have some thoughts on um, w- why a grower would want to do this. Yeah. Well, I guess I have one more question first. So the time when you are doing this propagating, is it a time when the greenhouse is underutilized? Great question. Yes. Most often we're, when we're propagating, all right, that's germinating a seed or rooting a cutting. So that's upstream from the normal crop production cycle, right? So, and, and you may be getting at a really important point here. If fuel is so expensive, why would we want to open the greenhouse up earlier? And that certainly is going to be a concern for some of these growers. So what I'm focusing on is that that operation that is running a greenhouse early in the season for bedding plants, it could be that they're growing, uh, running the greenhouse through the winter just minimally to keep a few things going. So if the greenhouse is up and running, then we, we, we have that backdrop, we have that, uh, that overhead that's being uh, literally heated. Uh, now we can take a portion of that greenhouse and carve out a propagating facility in it. Is that kind of what you're asking? Yes, it is. And now I think I'll get back to your question. So I feel like one of the things that was a big takeaway for me when studying the MBA program was deciding what is your core competency? What should you do? What is so important to your business that it needs to be done on time and correctly and like with the right quality? And what can you outsource? And so it sounds like if 80% of your crop is going to be these tomatoes, for example, then that's something you really want to take control of. You want to make sure you have this high quality product. You want to make sure it's available on time. You want to make sure you can get it into the field. Um, And so that to me feels like one of the reasons why you might want to have this propagation is so that you can make sure to, to secure that supplies right now and maybe even manage the cost when we're talking so much about higher costs. Excellent. Yes. Again, there's so many times where I make the comment, you're taking me back to earlier times in my life or career. And while I was running the family greenhouse and bedding plant operation, I did choose this route to be a self-propagator as much as I could be for all of the reasons you just listed, having that control so that I could schedule when I wanted, have the numbers that I wanted. And you and I have talked in the past about small growers having trouble sometimes meeting minimum orders, minimum quantities. So my strategy of self-propagation was to have stocked plants of some of these uh, specialty crops those that were not patented, of course, that I'm uh, free to legally propagate, having a few stock plants that I could remove cuttings from as needed through the winter months so that I'd have what my mom wanted to sell in the the spring. So yeah, that economics is all really good stuff. And you, you bring me back to it as we navigate through the conversation. 
because I, I want to make sure we talk about the, the physical facility, you know, how are we constructing a propagating facility and then let you keep bringing us back to center with some of these questions about, well, are you, why are you doing this? Are you prepared to spend this amount of money and, and whatnot? So yeah. go ahead. And I think that when you're, when you're looking at it as this core competency or having what you need available or even wanting to try something special, I could see it on the other end of the spectrum. You've talked a lot about how getting small orders of plugs is really expensive. And so maybe it's just something you need a few plants of, or it's a specialty crop that you haven't tried before. And so you want to reduce your costs and you've already got it set up. So I could see it on both ends of the spectrums being helpful. I think that the risk, which is much farther along, is that once it becomes part of your business, you don't want it to be the tail wagging the dog. Right. I assume that if you if you grew extra of your tomatoes, you could sell them off to other people that need them like that might be a good option. It might be a revenue stream. But at some point you then get into the business of just propagating and and allocating your resources towards that. So in some level, I feel like the risk is starting this, getting good at it, doubling down and continuing to build too far or when it's not economical anymore. Yep. And now another side to that coin is, and you hit it right on the head, this is in fact how some of our specialist propagators became that, where they may have been a small grower and chosen to propagate some of their crops on site, became really good at it, saw opportunities. We have some propagators that hardly finish any crops, but they have the reverse of this, Michelle, where a specialist propagator around the United States is gearing up to provide the finished growers like myself with all of our cuttings and seedlings ahead of the spring season. So when the, the, the peak of the specialist propagator season starts to uh, come, come down, here she now has empty greenhouse space in the spring months. So then the, the specialist flips on and puts on another hat and becomes a finished grower for that last section of the of the growing season where people aren't looking for cuttings and seedlings, yet all the facilities are there. So the specialists that will then produce finished crops. So it's it's the reverse of the conversation. Yeah. And I guess that and I would assume also that there are some people that either don't like it, are not good at it, or it doesn't make sense. And so they are going to be the people that purchase cuttings and seedlings from others. And I think that's important to notice that there's this balance. Basically, by starting your own seeds or cuttings, you're vertically integrating. So how much vertical integration do you want to control up and down your supply chain? And how much do you just really want to specialize in where you are? And I think both of those business models work for different people and in different ways. That's right. It's not a one size fits all. And uh, certainly the the small grower who chooses to do some propagating on, on site is going to be the type of grower who enjoys doing it and gets some satisfaction from it as well. Thought process is another grower saying, oh, I've got plenty of other things that I would choose to do during those times or plenty of other systems that I'm waiting to purchase for my uh, my greenhouse. So I'm going to pass on that. Let someone else 
do the propagating. So, so again, it's not a right or wrong answer. And uh, this conversation is just uh, is ear, earmarked for those growers who would like to do some vertical integration, as, as you're coining it. So just to jump into some of the, the, the physical parameters, you know, what do we need to, to, to do in the greenhouse? Keith started us off with it, and as we were running out of time, a couple of factors that we have to, to uh, consider, and we have to provide different amounts compared to the rest of the greenhouse. One is temperature. So we're going to need warmer temperatures for germinating a seed or rooting a cutting. And Keith made a, made a nice comment, Michelle, where he said, it's almost like we're going to build a growth chamber inside the greenhouse. So let me describe it as a greenhouse inside a greenhouse. And I have two of these setups in my research greenhouse. So I've recently gone through all of these standing on one's head to try and deliver temperature or we're going to get to moisture in a, in a few minutes. So what Keith and I talked about the other day was a root zone heating where we have hot water that's pumped through quarter inch diameter flexible black tubing right there sitting on the bench and the plug trays are set directly on top of these tubes that are circulating warm water. So we can deliver what we call bottom heat, heat right there at the root zone for the germinating seed and the rooting cutting. So how are we going to generate the hot water? Uh, some will have a hot water heating system in their greenhouse and merely need to zone off, cut a zone for those benches, which would require a, a dedicated thermostat. You know, we have to do this properly. And then uh, as we're delivering this root zone heat directly to the bench top and the, the root zone itself, now we have to consider, well, is the rest of the greenhouse sufficiently cooler that we should enclose this bench to trap the heat so that we're not wasting it and you know we can be efficient. So at that point, we talk about tents and uh, they can be as simple as, you know, just a, like a row cover in a field, or it can be something with structure that is, goes back to the build a growth chamber or a greenhouse in a greenhouse. I have the greenhouse in a greenhouse concept where I've built a little support structure out of PVC piping and drape plastic over it. So it's got a little more, you know, structure and permanency to it. That's what you grew your, your cacao plants in, right? When you did that experiment a few that, years ago? That's right. Good memory. I needed to have that growth chamber, that tropical environment within my Northern greenhouse. Yes. Um, now an, an option that many growers will choose as their A option is using electric heating pads where this would be a grower whose uh, furnace in the greenhouse is a hot air furnace, not a hot water furnace. So they're heating the greenhouse with hot air that's being blown, blown out of, of the furnace. They don't have access to hot water for root zone uh, benchtop heating. So then we've, we've got some really nice uh, uh, op options for 
heating mats. Um, some are the traditional, uh, it's a black, uh, flexible material that uh, has one plug. You, you plug it in and, and it's either a uh, footprint for a single 1020 plug tray or a double, or they have some that are four feet long. So, so those heating mats would be for the really small operation. And then if we're still looking at electric heat for the, the bottom heat, there are some manufacturers, a couple, uh, I've, I've dealt with one that pr produces a, a custom made to fit your bench top. And it looks like a laminated, uh, it's a clear plastic um, lamination uh, with the electric heating coils in between the laminated plastic. So you just plug those in and on either of these, Michelle, I highly recommend whether it's the, the black rubber heating mat or the, the, uh, the clear laminated type, uh, I recommend having a thermostat controlling them and not just plug them in and walk away because you can get overheating taking place on a sunny day. So, so is that the, th the thermometer that Keith mentioned or is that a special product that, that you add? The thermostat is different. The, Keith and I talked at length about thermostats and, and thermostat technology. And what he was recommending is, regardless of the type of thermostat, which is the switch turning a system on and off, whether it's a vent or a, or a heating zone valve, um, to, to have traditional standalone handheld thermometers throughout the greenhouse so that you can keep an eye on and track the accuracy of the thermostat, which is the switch. So, so mechanical, these, these pieces of equipment can fall out of calibration, particularly when we think about the seasonal temperature fluctuations in a greenhouse between winter and summer. And having the equipment going on that ride from if you're shutting the greenhouse down and not heating it, you can go down to zero. And then in the summer, if you're, um, you're not growing anything in there, uh, it can go up to 120. So that can wreak a little bit of havoc with some of the calibration uh, of, of the devices. So just having a thermometer in the greenhouse so that you can look at the thermometer and if it says, okay, it's 75 degrees, the air temperature here, and if you have your root zone heating set on 75, you know, you, you, you touch the heating mat and if it's on, you know, you, you can feel it. If it's not on, it's cool. And it, it, the, having the thermometers is a good uh, backup so that you know what's going on. So once, once the temperature is taken care of, the other uh, factor, growth factor, is moisture that needs to be um, handled differently for propagation. And in most cases, it's easiest to germinate a seed or root a cutting if we have some overhead mist at our fingertips. Now, this is a second reason to build the greenhouse in a greenhouse, because while we want very humid uh, or high humidity from the mist around the seed that's germinating or the cutting that's rooting, we don't necessarily want all that humidity in the rest of the greenhouse because then we can uh, encourage some fungal diseases and, and uh, problem, problems with, with crop protection. So 
for both reasons, containing heat and containing the humidity. Um, you can see where Keith is saying growth chamber in the greenhouse. I'm saying a mini greenhouse in the greenhouse. Then when we're talking about mist, Michelle, uh, there are wonderful mist nozzles available through the greenhouse uh, supplier uh, world. These are all low pressure, uh, fine droplet mist nozzles. And uh, for me, I'll describe the, the size of the greenhouse in my greenhouse. I built each of my two propagating facilities around a three foot by six foot flood and drain bench. So that bench contains the water. I can, you know, collect the drain, draining water from the excess mist, et cetera. And then it made for a nice uh, foundation to build the PVC structure around. This may be too small for most of the growers who are listening and considering propagating, but it's a excellent an excellent way for someone to just dabble and get started, as you say, to, to figure out if it's within his or her core competency. You can start as small as a three by six. We also have four foot by eight foot flood and drain benches if somebody wanted to build around one of those. Uh, and then other growers can just use their, their imaginations, their ingenuity and, and you know come up with their own versions of what I'm describing. Sounds like Keith is seeing a lot of that. He mentioned the the paper that you can put over to prevent frost and like maybe not buying a whole extra roll, but what you've used already, if you have cuttings or, you know, no pun intended, but if you have pieces like strips left over that you can kind of use those and kind of, like there isn't a one size fits all of this greenhouse in a greenhouse. It, it, it can fit what you have or what you want to use and really limit the investment in the beginning. Yes, that, that was, you know, for, for Keith to make that comment, it really hits home with someone like me that my dad taught me, if you can do it yourself, do it. And oftentimes, if you do it yourself, you'll be able to do it better than someone else would do it. That's not always true, but, you know, it, it, it's how a lot of us think. So in recent years, when I would uh, uh, be cutting sheets of uh, double wall polycarbonate, you know, for either my end walls or, or some insulating sidewalls that I recently did. Any piece of scrap of this polycarbonate, which is really expensive stuff, right, goes into a, uh, a little storage area. And I'm forever walking in and out of there looking for a certain size piece of polycarbonate that can serve some function. So yes, growers are very ingenious, very creative, and any of these materials, row, uh, Keith was talking about the row cover, as you said, it's a nice fabric that contains heat, but it also is permeable. So it allows moisture, humidity in, in and out. And some growers will just lay this over the seeded plug trays to, to contain some of, some of the moisture and humidity. Well, and we've been talking a lot recently about how to manage this time, right? With higher cost or supply chain disruption or changing consumer demand, all of these pieces. And it sounds like starting your own plants, one, can give you some ownership over your supply. Two, it might be cheaper. 
Um, three, it could diversify your income. So if you're looking at, you know, selling into different markets, but it also kind of fits into this more resilient, more resourceful mindset. And so, you know, it doesn't make sense for a big company to save all of their scraps, right? There's too many people that might need it. And how do they know where to go? And like when time, when costs are cheaper, it just makes sense to throw it away and buy a new one. And so main going back, as you've mentioned a few times to having that storage room with these odds and ends and like trying some things and, you know, you might have a little bit of time in the off season that it's worth tinkering with. But like, this is the agility that we've been talking about since the very beginning, that how small farms can pivot. How can small businesses pivot? Well, to start a, you know, to, if you're a large farm, you, the amount of seedlings you would need to make a dent in your operation is so large that it would be an investment. And it sounds like with the materials you already have on hand or a little bit of the inventory that you've been saving or, you know, materials from some other places, you could set this up. Um, and you have a lot of flexibility and it gives you more flexibility moving forward. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> the, two, two comments I have for you. The flip side of this coin is um, it's easy to let the operation, the property turn into a junkyard. So you have to balance it. So, so I'm, I'm forever, Michelle, if, if I'm saving some scraps of, from a project, and I'm looking to put it somewhere, and there's other stuff there that might be quote unquote under the junk category, I'm always looking to get rid of something if I'm going to add something new. You know, and, it, and you're always guessing, and it's forever, you know, you're, you're saying uh, today, son of a gun, if I hadn't thrown that out last month, I'd use it now. But you have to just balance that stuff so that uh, the, the property is, uh, if, particularly if you're retail and you have customers around the property, you don't want it looking like a junkyard. So, so just be mindful of that. And then the second point is, as I chose to be a self-propagator, I will say to you, uh, as, as you're asking some of these important questions, I will state to you that for me, my decision was, not based on saving any money. In fact, I came to the realization it was probably a little more expensive for me to do it on site, but it was the other reasons, that comfort of knowing that I had the numbers I wanted, when I wanted, and I knew the quality. Those were more important factors for me, not for everybody. So it was really interesting how, again, you know, no, not one right or wrong answer, one size doesn't fit all. And depending on the answers to your questions, growers can help decide which path they'd like to take. It's like the uh, Wizard of Oz and you're meeting the Scarecrow and he's pointing both directions and you have to choose the path. So, so then we've talked about temperature, supplying more heat, and we've talked about mist. Let me finish the misting off. We talked about the nozzles. It's really important to invest in a mist controller. And this controller is not going to be, in most cases, it's not going to be a traditional irrigation controller. So we have to have a mist controller because 
the, the standard misting regime that I recommend and I've grown up with, Michelle, is to provide six seconds of misting every four minutes from a half hour before sunrise to a half hour after sunset. So most of the irrigation controllers are going to say, how many minutes do you want me to run? How many times a day do you want me to run? It's those controllers cannot control down to the second. So this is a misting controller, invest in it because it pays dividends. If we over mist seedlings or cuttings, we're going to have rot and poor yields. And you know the conclusion is it's not my core competency where spending $100 on a misting controller will um, eliminate that kind of mistake. Now, to finish it off, we can talk about lighting as we've talked about as supplemental lighting to the sun in northern greenhouses during the winter. So we may want some an LED light if, if we had Alex back on and we're talking about propagating facilities. Uh, his first comment would probably be, yes, but do not mount it inside the tent because of all the humidity and the electronics and the equipment. So what I have is one of Alex's units hung above this tent and I lose a little bit of light there because of reflection. There's a, a, a polyethylene roof over the tent and the light is outside or above it, but it's better than not having any supplemental light at all. And now that we've talked about temperature, moisture and light, that, that last part is, okay, you've got this tent inside the greenhouse. There are going to be sunny days where it needs to be ventilated because it's going to then turn into a cooker or a smoker, if you will, because if you build a tent over this bench, you have bottom heat, it's contained and sealed. If it's a sunny day during the winter and the rest of the greenhouse is being ventilated, then uh, there needs to be some ventilation in this, in this uh, propagating facility. Now it can be by hand. I have the front side of my two units separate so I can just roll, roll up the side. But when I'm not there in the greenhouse all day, I've also rigged up a small inline fan with a little bit of um, duct work so that I can put that fan on its own thermostat and I can ventilate uh, by pulling some cool air into these two sealed chambers as needed. So it's, it's all going to be about the controls and the thermostats. And, you know, we've talked so much about something like uh, Dave Bartlett's technology. Now Dave's unit also has some misting control in it so that there are some timers in, in the Bartlett system that allow us to run some misting solenoids. And I've used, used that in a research project last summer. But for if a greenhouse doesn't have that level of uh, control yet, we can do it with the discussion that you and I are having. So, so that's, that's what I wanted to cover, Michelle, just to talk a little bit more about how do we do it? What do we need for the environmental side of it? And then knowing that you were going to bring in the economics and help us advise growers, is, is this a good decision? Is it not? 
Um, so, so I would say on a small scale, there's very little involved, a couple of thermostats. So, you know, it might be a couple hundred dollars, say a few hundred dollars to get something up and running. And then you can dabble a little bit and let's say on, on site this next spring for tomato transplants, maybe I'm going to try and produce a quarter or a third or a half of this one main cultivar and then buy in the rest. And, and then, you know, s- split the risk a little bit there, knowing that I'm going to get some in while I'm learning how to grow my own. And then if I do a good job, then next year, perhaps I'll grow all of that cultivar. Um, when the day comes that a seed germinating or a cutting rooting doesn't get me excited, when that day comes, I'll know that it's time to pack up and walk away and call it a day. But... For me and so many other farmers and greenhouse operators who still get excited over seeing seeds germinating, like we're kids again in the greenhouse or on the farm, or seeing that we can grow a mother plant and take cuttings, root those cuttings and continue that crop, heirlooms, whatever, pet plants around the the greenhouse. Uh, That's all exciting stuff. And as horticulturists or agriculturists, you know, we're all in this because we love growing plants. Uh, you brought up, brought up a really good point. Is, is this a core competency? And I would propose that if we have a grower or a farmer, I would say absolutely this is within their core competency if they only concentrate and decide to do it the right way. Absolutely. And it's something that needs to be reevaluated. One of our first episodes, you talked about that three years of trying something. And so the first year you try it and the second year you try to get better. And then like, if you're not making money, you need to give up. And that feels like what this is. It feels like something that there's enough going on in the market right now that you might want to try it. Like no expectations this year. You are paying attention to how much of your time and energy and resources this is taking and what the payoff is. And it might be a cost saving. So it's monetary. It might be the ability to sleep at night. Like you said, making sure you have the crops you need in when you need them. It might be something you enjoy. Like it doesn't matter necessarily what the benefits are, but that is kind of how I would evaluate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Grower and the Economist. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate it wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps us get discovered by new listeners. If you have questions, concerns, or would like to suggest a podcast topic, please email me at michelle at I love hearing from you. Until next time.